open it to the book of Joshua. If you are using the Pew Bible, we'll be on page, uh, beginning on page 179. Before I read our scripture this morning, two things. One, just a general announcement. Next week, we get to hear from uh, Bradford Green, who's the new RUF campus minister at TCU. And after that, uh, he'll be uh, having a little bit of a reception over in the lecture hall just to introduce himself for us to drop in there on our way to lunch to say hello and welcome him and his wife, Christina, to Fort Worth. Uh, so I just wanted to highlight that and encourage you all to, um, to, to make plans to introduce yourself to them next week. Second, uh, if you are just now joining us by way of review before I read this, we have started a series in the book of Joshua. Um, and um, just, you know, the Old Testament can be a little challenging. Uh, this is what's going on. And, and just by way of sort of review so far, I want us to remember before I read this that God has, has promised many things to this people that he calls Israel, that is called Israel in the Old Testament. And this started way back in Genesis chapter 12 uh, to a man named Abraham. And, and among those promises was that he would make Abraham into this nation and this many people. He also promised to Abraham that he would be his God, that he you know, covenanted with him, he promised he would be with him. And he also promised Abraham that he would give, them, give him a land. Well, lots, of, lots has happened uh, since that time. And as we come onto the pages of Joshua, um, three of, two of those three promises have happened. Uh, Abraham has been given a lot of people. Of course, Abraham is dead, but it, Israel is now about 100,000 people. I mean, they are this nation that God promised to make. Um, from him. So that's been accomplished. God is with his people, as we've seen already. So that, that, that covenantal promise is still there. The only promise that has not been met at this point is that the land has not been received. And if you're ever wondering what Joshua is about, it's about that one thing. Receiving the land, getting that final promise uh, that God gave way back in chapter 12. And I think that's helpful by way of review as we start chapter 3 because now we're starting to get into the fulfillment of that promise. And in chapter 3, we'll read uh, of the crossing of the Jordan that puts them then in the land of Canaan where they will, will begin this conquest. Let me add this. In three weeks, we will discuss and talk about all of your questions, hopefully, about all the things centered around the conquest of the land and Israel driving out this people group that has so many different you know, questions that come with that. Why would God do this? Why would God to love annihilate people uh, like this? What is that about? And so I want to preface it with, with that, saying that as we begin there, we will address those things in three weeks. Um, so stay tuned, okay? Let's now give our attention to the reading of God's Word, found in the book of Joshua. I'll be reading all of chapter 3 and then the first verse of chapter 5. Skip, I'll skip over chapter 4. Um, here's the reading of God's Word. Then Joshua rose early in the morning, and they set out for Shittim, and they, and they came to the Jordan, he and all the people of Israel, and lodged there before they passed over. At the end of three days, the officers went through the camp and commanded the people, as soon as you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God being carried by the Levitical priests, then you shall set out from your place and follow it. Yet there shall be a distance between you and it, about 2,000 cubits in length. Do not come near it in order that you may know the way you shall go, for you have not passed this way before. Then Joshua said to the people, Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. And Joshua said to the priests, 
take up the Ark of the Covenant and pass on before the people. So they took up the Ark of the Covenant and they went before the people. Verse 7, the Lord said to Joshua, Today I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all of Israel, that they may know that as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. And as for you, command the priests who bear the Ark of the Covenant, when you come to the brink of the waters of the Jordan, you shall stand still in the Jordan. And Joshua said to the people of Israel, come here and listen to the words of the Lord your God. And Joshua said, here is how you shall know that the living God is among you, and that he will without fail drive out from before you the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, the Gigashites, and the Amorites, and the Jebusites. Behold, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth is passing over before you into the Jordan. Now, therefore, take 12 men from the tribes of Israel, from each tribe a man. And when the soles of the feet of the priests bearing the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth shall rest in the waters of the Jordan. The waters of the Jordan shall be cut off from flowing and the waters coming down from above shall stand in one heap. So when the people set out from their tents to pass over the Jordan with the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant before the people. And as soon as those bearing the Ark had come as far as the Jordan, and the feet of the priests bearing the Ark were dipped in the brink of the water, now the Jordan overflows all its banks throughout the time of harvest. The waters coming down from above stood and rose up in a heap very far away at Adam, the city that is beside Zarethan, and the flowing down toward the sea of the Arabah and the Salt Sea were completely cut off. And the people passed over opposite Jericho. Now the priests bearing the ark of the covenant of the Lord stood firmly on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan. And all Israel was passing over on dry ground until all the nation finished passing over the Jordan. Chapter 5, verse 1. As soon as all the kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to the west and all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan for the people of Israel until they had crossed over, their hearts melted and there was no longer any spirit in them because of the people of Israel. Let me pray and ask God to teach us his word. Heavenly Father, we pray now that you would be with us, that you would give us your spirit as you promised to do to teach us. We pray that you would open our ears and our eyes that we may then see and hear things otherwise we could not for your glory. We ask this in your son's name. Amen. Start this morning by asking you, what motivates you? Um, and, And underneath that a little bit, you know, what is the one thing that would need to be true in order for you to you know, set your mind to anything, to accomplish anything, to motivate you to go and do anything. Maybe, you know, sometimes this is how you feel on that last day of school or, or that, that week leading up to a vacation, right? If you're at work or at school and you're like, I know Friday I'm going to be, be at the beach, so maybe I'm willing to put in a little more extra hours. I'm a little motivated to, to do whatever it has to do because, do whatever I have to do because I know that in the coming days I'm out of here. Um, what, what does it take to motivate you in that way. Uh, last weekend, Ada and I were celebrating the birthday of a friend of ours, and May, our oldest, was babysitting her sisters. And we, uh, we get home that night, and we walk into the house, and it's utter silence, eerie silence. Like, what, what's, are they here? Um, and as it, and it wasn't too late, but it was, you know, I don't know, 930. Um, and as it turns out, the girls had put themselves to bed. 
I mean, we have four girls, ages, ten is the oldest, five is the youngest. They had put themselves to bed. I, I couldn't believe it. Um, then Ada turns to me and she says, I forgot to tell you, I told the girls I'd pay them $5 if they put themselves to sleep. I didn't think they'd do it, is what she says. Um, Mom of the Year Award already has been awarded, sorry. Uh, this was no joke. Virginia wakes up that next morning, and the first thing out of her mouth is, I mean, she can't even see. Where's my $5? <laughs> what, mot- what motivates you, right? What motivates you? All of us are motivated by something, and sometimes it's, it's, it's little things like, like looking forward to a vacation or, or, or knowing that you know, there's $5 for you if you just put yourself to sleep. But sometimes it's, it's bigger things, uh, which is what Israel is facing in this passage. And what I would argue really is what this passage is, is about. Israel, in the book of Joshua, has been tasked with a huge job, as I just said earlier. They, they, are, they are being tasked with taking over this land that has bigger armies in it. Right? They don't... They don't they are not equipped to do this. And the one thing that must be true for them if they are going to succeed, if they are going to carry this out, is they must know and they must believe that God is with them. That he loves them. That they are a loved people. If they know that, if they remember that, they will be successful in their mission. And what I want us to see in chapters 3 and 4 is that the whole thing, everything that, that, that is in there, is about God showing them, convincing them, telling them, I love you, I am with you, will you trust me? Because knowing they are loved, and more importantly, why they are loved, which is God's grace, is the only thing that will send them into mission, into the land of Canaan. Again, we're going to talk about that in three weeks. But I want us to see, too, that the same is true for us this morning. I want us to draw that parallel between what is going on here in Joshua and what is going on in our own lives. And, and that is the only way that God's people, his church today, are able to, to be the church and, just, and thus carry out the mission of the church, which is very different than this mission. Right, it's a mission now of what? Of love and of forgiveness and of, and of showing mercy because you have been shown mercy. As if the church, as if you know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you are loved. But not just loved, but why you are loved. And that is God's grace to you. Grace is not just the motivator, friends, for us. It is the engine that sustains us throughout our ministry as his people. And just as God is showing Israel his grace for them in this passage, God has ultimately what shown us his grace to us in Jesus Christ. Our task then, just like Israel's, is to believe it, is to receive it. And when we do, and only when we do, right, are we capable of mission of being the church, which is a mission of loving and forgiving and showing mercy to a broken and hurting world. I'm editing our outline by one point for time, so you can get excited about that already. Um, but what I want us to see this morning is that because Israel is a loved people, I'm going to go ahead and start. That, that's true. We're not going to prove that. Because they are a loved people, they are in possession of something powerful. And they are attempting to believe the unbelievable. So those are the two things we're going to look at this morning. 
because they are loved people, they are in possession of something powerful, and they are attempting to believe the unbelievable. So let's look at that. The first one, because they are, they are loved people, they are in possession of something powerful. I want to place you in this story um, as an onlooker. Uh, I don't know if you've ever done this as you read Scripture, but as someone observing the scene in, in, in chapters 3 and 4, and as those are sort of playing out before your eyes to kind of get into this a little bit. So imagine with me for a minute that, that you are leaving for the day to go to your favorite camping spot, and you're headed to this place, and you love this place, you've been to this place before. And at this time of year, when everything is full and rich because it's harvest season, you love to go to this particular spot where the river just floods. And it creates all these little tributaries and pools that you can swim in and you just love it. And at certain times, the river just becomes so big that it's about 140 feet wide. And we're talking almost kind of Mississippi River-ish here. 10, 12 feet deep in different places. And, uh, and, and no one is usually there because it's harvest season. And so they're, they're, they're back enjoying that. And you're enjoying the, 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 uh, the fact that you can be alone for a while. You're not interested in crossing this river or, or dealing with it. You're interested in, in its rapids and its ripples singing you to sleep every night. So you arrive at your spot, you set up your camp, but you've got one more thing to do before you go in for the night. And that is you have to go fill your water bottles up. And so you go out to the, to the river shore and you don't notice it at first because you're not expecting to see anything. But then it catches your eye. And with a closer look, you see this mob of people as far deep as your eyes can see and as far wide as you can see on the other side of this river. Thousands of them sitting over there. And the first thing that comes to mind is that any mass of people that would be lined up on the shore like that would be here to do one thing. They would be here to invade. This screams of war to you. But there's something about this group, though, that makes you think that can't be. Or at least if they are here for war, or you begin to feel sorry for them because of the way they look. There's not much to this ragtag group of people that you are now noticing and interested in, at least compared to the armies that you have seen back home. I mean, first, there are no major weapons. There are no chariots. There's no armor. There's no cavalry that would indicate that we mean business here. You begin to notice some swords, various weapons collected as a nomadic people would, would, but nothing screams run. In fact, you're not fearful at this point. You're more curious to figure out what is going on. You're even thinking, are they seriously considering invading Canaan? They'll never reach the Jericho walls before they are crushed by the armies that I have seen. But you see that they are set on invading. More numbers of them ready for battle Uh, come forward. And what is making them do this, you ask? (laughs) What is making them do this? Why are they doing this? Are they doing this for money? Is there some evil dictator forcing them to the front lines to basically commit suicide in your mind? Why are they doing this? What is compelling them? You're so confused, but you're not concerned because no one is crossing the river today. And just as you turn back to your campsite, your eye catches the reflection of something shiny being carried by a group of men as it passes roads and soldiers. Those soldiers then fall behind other soldiers that are following the shiny gold box being carried. What you can't figure out is why nobody is within a half mile of this thing. No one is getting close to this thing besides those that are carrying it. But then something strange happens. The men carrying the box stop. They face the river. They start walking into the river. And at this point, you cannot figure out what they are doing. Because certainly don't they know that they will be carried away by this river that overflows. But nothing can prepare you for what you are about to see next. As the men wade in, they set the shiny golden box down into the water. 
And just like that before your eyes, the waters are pushed back. You say to yourself, this can't be happening, but it is. It is happening. And in a matter of minutes, you are no longer looking at a raging river. You are looking at a riverbed, a dry riverbed at that. And just like that, this mass of ragtag nomadic people begin coming towards you, crossing this river. Your instincts tell you to run, but your curiosity, again, keeps you put. What is going on here, you think? What is this shiny golden box that these people possess? Let's come back to the text here for a minute. What is that shiny golden box that Israel possesses? And as we look at this first point, that they are, because they are loved, that they are in possession of something powerful, we know it as the Ark of the Covenant. Of course, that's what the text says. But what is that? It is God's presence with his people. Where the ark resided, so did Yahweh's presence in a very tangible way. Darwin hit at this in the first week. Notice, though, how everything in the story, though, and this is the point, is centered around the ark. Beginning in verse 3, as soon as you see the ark of the covenant of the Lord, your God being carried by the Levitical priests, then you shall set out. From your place and follow it. Verse 10. Here's how you shall know that the living God is among you. Behold, the ark is passing before you. When the soles of the shoes of those bearing the ark of the Lord rest in the waters of the Jordan, the water shall be what? Cut off from flowing. 416. We didn't read this. Command the priest bearing the ark of the testimony to come up out of the water. And when the priest bearing the ark of the covenant of the Lord came out of the midst of the Jordan, the soles of the priests, their feet were lifted upon the dry ground. The waters of the Jordan returned. What's the picture here? What are you seeing as you watch this? What is God trying to communicate to this generation? He's trying to communicate one thing, and that is, I am with you. I love you. Do you know what you are in possession of? Do you know who is in control here? To say that Israel is in possession of something powerful is an understatement. Everything from here on is about God showing Israel who is in control, who is in charge, who will fight for you. Who is the real hero? And it's Yahweh. It's God. Dale Ralph Davis puts it this way. The whole affair is Yahweh's feet. And the Israelites, though active, are still primarily spectators. It is crucial that Israel recognize that what happens is indeed Yahweh's work. So what we read in chapters 3 and 4 from here on out is actually in micro of what we will experience in macro for the rest of the book. It is God saying to Israel, this is not your battle, this is my battle. I am the one who will fight for you. I am the one who will go before you. I am the one who will drive out the inhabitants of this land. I am the one who has the power to stop rivers because I created them. Armies are nothing to me. In other words, do not look to yourself, but look to me. This is where your salvation will come from in the days to come. That's what he is trying to communicate to Israel right now. Israel, you are in possession of something powerful, and it's me. This is the God of this entire creation. Let me show you what I am capable of by parting this river. A story, by the way, you might be familiar with. If you noticed all the overtones, of course. And why is this story so familiar? Why is it so similar to Egypt? Because it's the same God. 
And he's trying to show people that just as I was with Moses, I'm with you too. Do you know what you are in possession of? I think it's easy when we read the Old Testament for us to look at Israel at times, especially as we see what happens after this, and sort of shake our heads as, you know, when they doubt or when they get scared or when they fear in spite of what they have seen, in spite of what they possess. But we forget, too, that we possess what we possess this very minute. If we stop and think about it for a second, we possess God's very spirit in us. A spirit that 2 Timothy 1.7 says that is not a fear, but of what power and love and self-control. A spirit that Jesus himself actually says that it is to your advantage that I go away so that the helper, the Holy Spirit, might come to you. It's John 16. We forget that. But do you know why we forget it? We forget it because we do not live as loved people. We live as people who think, on one side, how could God possibly want to be with someone like me? How disgusted must he be of me right now? That's on one side. On the other side, we tend to think, you know what? I am this close to getting my act together. And when I do, God will love me and want to be with me. I'm so close. Even reformed people. How often, though, you know, if we're honest, right, we don't naturally live as loved people. And this is, where, this is where we relate to Israel. How often do we consider ourselves, when we wake up in the morning, when we go to work, when we sit down for a meal, when we parent, when we get ready for bed, how often do we think that I am loved by God? And because that's true, I'm in possession of something powerful, his very own spirit. A spirit not of fear, but of power and of love and of self-control. We can say what we want about Israel in the coming chapters as they remember and as they forget and as they remember and as they forget. But it's not just their problem, it's ours too. And if the Bible is true about what the spirit is like, you know, what he's about, I wonder what would happen if we begin to call on the spirit more often to know what we are in possession of as well as his people so that we might begin to be the church. Not begin, but continue. Holy Spirit, I do not have the patience for my spouse today. I need your power to change me. Holy Spirit, I do not have the self-control to stop lusting over this thing or person. I need you to change me. Holy Spirit, my heart does not want to forgive this person. Change me. God is saying the same thing here. Do not look to yourself. Look to me. You are a loved people in possession of something powerful. Let me show you what I am capable of. I am with you. This is what they have. This is what Israel is in possession of. And this is what you are in possession of too. Now let's look and see why Israel has it. And hopefully why we have it too. We've seen that Israel as a loved people is in possession of something powerful. Now let's look at how they are attempting to believe the unbelievable. Let's return to the shore here real quick. 
The waters, as we look on, are pushed back and the power and the people then begin to cross over. And it's not everyone that we notice. It's, it's just those that are fit for battle. It's about 40,000 of them. And they are ready for it. And before the waters return, one by one, you notice 12 men walking back out to the middle of this river. And they're picking up the biggest stone that they can carry. And they're throwing it on their shoulder. And they're coming back and they're placing them on top of each other. And you've seen this before. This is sort of an altar or a memorial. And what they're doing is they're setting up this scene, this memorial, so that they might remember what happened this day. What's striking about setting up this memorial at this point to you, though, is that it assumes they will be around long enough to need to remember, which means they believe that they will be victorious over the people in this land. And it's here that you begin to see that this people is truly believing or attempting to believe anyway the unbelievable, that they are actually set on going in and taking over these armies in this land. Once the stones are set, the priests move the shiny golden box from the dry ground to the river's edge. And just like that, the waters return. There is no going back. They are committed. Now, here's what you don't know. Standing on that shore watching this play out. You think that the hardest thing for this nomadic group of people to believe is that they will be victorious in the face of much larger armies. Will that be hard? Absolutely. But I promise you. That in the days to come, that will not be the hardest thing for them to believe. The hardest thing for them to believe is why God is giving them the land in the first place. It is not because of who they are, what they have done. It is not because they are better than the Canaanite people and have earned, right, this land. God is giving them this land because why? He loves them. And he loves them for no other reason than he loves them. And that means it's grace to them. A crucial passage for us as we continue on in Joshua comes from Deuteronomy 9, verses 4 to 6. And this is Moses telling the generation before this what they are to expect and and, and to know as they prepare to enter the land, which they never entered. And this is what he says to them. Do not say in your heart after the Lord your God has thrust them out before you. It is because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess this land. Whereas it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out before you. Not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart are you going in to possess their land. But because of the wickedness of these, of these nations, the Lord your God is driving them out before you. And that he may confirm or keep his promise. Confirm the word that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Know, therefore, and this is the crucial point. Know, therefore, that the Lord your God has not given you this good land to possess because of your righteousness. For you are a stubborn people. Why is God giving them this land? It's grace. It's the unmerited favor of this God for no other reason than it is his pleasure. It is his pleasure to do so. What's going to be the challenge for Israel here then is not the task of taking out armies bigger than theirs. It's dealing with their own self-righteousness. That they somehow deserve to be here. 
that they are better than the Canaanites. See, what Israel will be attempting to believe that is unbelievable is not the battle in front of them, but the battle within their own hearts. That they are loved for no other reason than God loves them. In other words, what God has been telling them is that armies will not destroy you. What will destroy you is your self-righteousness. And dare I say, friends, that he is saying the exact same thing to us this morning. Armies are not your enemy. Republicans and Democrats are not your enemy. Your spouse is not your enemy. Your parents are not your enemy. Your real enemy is your own self-righteousness, according to Joshua at this point. It's thinking and believing that you are loved because you deserve it. And when that is our belief, the only people who will receive your love, your forgiveness, your mercy are those that deserve it too. And friends, that is no gospel at all. Nothing kills the mission of the church faster because self-righteousness cannot receive grace. Do you see the tension there as they stand on the other side of the Jordan River, receiving what is only a gift to them? Self-righteousness cannot receive grace, which is why there is a mission, a church in the first place. But what God But what has God been saying to Israel since chapter 1? Take possession of this land that I am what? Giving you. The Lord is providing you a place of rest and will give you this land. The land, friends, is the ultimate of what is grace in the Old Testament. It is the ultimate of what is the unmerited gift of God. It is the very thing that tells Israel you are a loved people because it tells them why you are a loved people. It is my grace. It is unmerited favor to you. And believing this is the hardest thing that Israel, or any of us for that matter, will attempt to believe in our lives. The question for Israel as they stand now on the other side of the Jordan is, will they receive this gift? Will they receive grace? What God is giving them, or will they fear? Will they look to themselves Will their self-righteousness drive them out in the end? Why do we struggle or even hate, if I could use such a word, this message of grace? Why is this what is so hard to believe for Israel and, dare I say, so hard for us to believe this morning? And I'm going to give us this one thing to think about because I think grace, if it is true, then it tells us That there is one hero in this story and it is not us. And we want to be the hero, don't we? That's what self-righteousness is. This battle, Israel, is about the fight, though, in the coming chapters. It is the Lord's. It is not theirs. They are not the hero and it will consume them in the the form of their own self-righteousness. Here's what I love about how this story ends, and that's where we'll end this morning for now. Joshua 5, verse 1, we read it. As soon as all the kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan of the West and all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea heard the Lord 
had heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan. Their hearts melted and there was no longer any spirit in them because of the people of Israel. Israel hasn't done the first thing. And already, what's happened? The kings are defeated. The kings are defeated. In one sense, it's over before it really began. And Israel hasn't even seen its first battle. They've done nothing. All they did was follow a shiny golden box, literally. Do you see that? And friends, that's the point. That's the point. There's only one hero. And if we miss this in Joshua, then we will miss it in Matthew as well. This battle in Joshua, as we see it unfold, actually points us to a much more important battle that will happen on a cross some 1,500 years later. An ultimate battle over your sin and death. And just like this one here in Joshua, that battle on Calvary belongs to the Lord too. Do you see what he is teaching his people? And just like that shiny golden box before Israel, Jesus then must come on the scene and go before us. He must fight for us by how? Dying. As paradoxical as that is, Jesus must be our only hope. He must be the ones that we look to. And when we see him and what he has promised to do for us, we must not say that it is because of our own self-righteousness or our own righteousness and deeds. For I, too, am a stubborn people. Instead, we see that it, too, is grace to us. For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is what? A gift. A gift, just like this land to Israel. And when you see that, only when you see that and know of this grace, what? To know you are loved and why you are loved? Because God just loves you? For no other reason? Will you be able to be the church for a hurting and broken world? Which is mission. Will you be able to love and forgive and show mercy? Because mercy has been shown to you. The whole mission of being the church depends on this one thing. In the same way that the whole mission of Israel set before us in Joshua depends on this one thing. Will they believe that God has gone before them, that God loves them, that they are loved people, that they have him as their possession? That he is the one who fights for them in spite of their own self-righteousness. And I could say the same for us, that he loves you, that he is committed to you, that he is with you even this very minute in spite of the self-righteousness that fills this room this morning. In spite of your thinking that I deserve this great salvation because of how I parent or how I don't parent, because of how I give my money or because of how I volunteer in spite of all that. Jesus says, I love you. I am with you. I love you for no other reason because I love you. That is grace. And it is the gospel of Joshua to us. If not this, friends, if not this grace that we are seeing, what is the motivation for you here this morning? What is the one thing that needs to be true for you you in order to follow this Jesus, to be a part of this mission, to be a part of his church, to go out and, and, and offer love and forgiveness and mercy to a hurting and broken world? What is your motivation for that other than the grace of God? 
Is it the prospect, perhaps, of knowing one day you might be the hero of this story? Or is it seeing the hero, the God who fights for you, Jesus, and knowing that if that is how much he loves you, I'll follow him anywhere. Friends, because of Jesus and his death for you, you are a loved people. You are in possession of something powerful, attempting to believe the unbelievable, that grace is real. May it be all we need to know to send us into mission, to be the church for a hurting and broken world. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, as we look at this portion of the story of Joshua, as we see Israel crossing over, would we see you leading this people, going before this people, convincing this people that you are with them? And why are you with them? Because you love them. And why do you love them? Because you love them. Because it's grace. And the same is true for us this morning. This story is our story. I pray, Lord, that you would show us uh, through this story in the coming weeks too, just great and wonderful pictures of your grace to us that we may know and see the love of Jesus for us more clearly uh, and, uh, and want to, because of that, follow him and to be a part of the mission of the church uh, that, that you are calling your people to be. Would you do that for your glory alone, we pray. Amen.